Hello and welcome everyone to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. And I'm James Rizika. And uh, every episode we watch two films, a new film and an old film. And we try to connect the dots. Uh, talking of connecting the dots, actually, I, so I've, I was told off this week, I, we're supposed to talk about the socials before we talk about the films. Nice this is, segue. Yeah, this is, what, this is, this is what, that was effortless, wasn't it? This is what <laughs> the young people do, I think. Um, so, so I'm going to mention right at the top of the show, because otherwise we always forget. I'm going to mention at the top now. So, so uh, if you enjoyed the show, um, please do uh, rate us on iTunes or uh, iTunes doesn't even exist, does it? Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Rate, rate yeah. us on the gramophone. Um, and <laughs> uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, we are at, at Two Real Cinema Cine Club. You can find us on Instagram at Two Real Cinema Club. You can even email us now. There, I got that correct, isn't it? That was, yeah. that was correct. So, that, so we are the two, two Real Cinema Club at Gmail. Um, so we're, we're on the internet. Um, do come and find us if you can. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, what, what are we talking about this week? Uh, we are talking about uh, two films. Uh, first is um, Top Gun Maverick. Recently released yeah. 2000, 2000, 2000, 2022. Uh, the big return of Tom Cruise and the Top Gun gang, as well as the 19, I want to say 45 film. Is that right? It was 45. 45. Yeah. Um, they were expendable, directed by John Ford and uh, featuring John Wayne in a, another wartime or military um, epic film. Yeah. Uh, are you ready to do this? I, th- I think so. Shall we get started? Yeah, how 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 is how did you get on with your viewing of Top Gun Maverick? Oh my god, perfect circumstances. It was a a late night film, tennis, big screen, one other dude in the audience. <laughs> um, so I was actually able to use my phone when I'm in the theater. <gasps> it's hard to take notes, you know. So I've I had to, I used the drink holder to hold my phone, and occasionally I would just hit the light so that I could oh take. Oh my god, a few you're notes. that guy. I am that guy. Well, in that again, perfect circumstances. In this setting, I was able to be that guy. I'm not always that guy. Uh, Sometimes I write in the dark and then it's absolutely impossible to read my yeah. chicken scratch. And <laughs> yes. so yeah, I've com- done that with notebook on the lap and you just kind of scribble and you think, well, I think that's about the right place. It exactly. feels like halfway down the page. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then yeah, interpreting it after the fact is, yeah, why did I even bother writing so this? It does excuse some of my lousy commentary, but uh, <laughs> these circumstances are great. Big screen. Uh, and uh, I, I can scarcely contain my excitement. I don't. I don't know if I'm embarrassed or ashamed. This is not generally my kind of film, but I'm going to say some positive things about something that normally. <laughs> oh I no! Would have. Yeah. So th- th- this film is in the ten percent of things you like. Yes. Yes. Most of the ninety are the things you don't. It's crazy. <laughs> and I think for both of us, it inspired a a look back at uh, the original Top Gun from 1986. So. I'm sure we'll be talking about both films, so it's kind of a ooh, it's kind of a three for one or a three for two. Yeah, uh, two real cinema yeah, 50% club extra. I might have to change it to three real cinema club for this one episode. <laughs> so Maverick was uh, directed by Joe Kaczynski, who I didn't know him before. Um, he's done a couple films with Tom Cruise, so they worked together. And the biggest film that I, biggest title that I saw in the IMDb was Tron. Yeah, it's Tron, Tron Legacy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, the original. So it's was like a, he's, he's yeah, he's made mostly a career of remaking eighties hits. There you go. Like yeah. Doing kind of sort of like long-awaited sequels to eighties yeah. hits, which you know it's it's interesting because in one of my early film classes, the the instructor did say that you know I don't, he didn't understand why people were going back and remaking good films. 
didn't make any sense to him because they've already <laughs> made money. You're not going to top it. You're not going to take it anywhere new, really. So any like Manchurian candidate or Psycho, those are great examples of, of those disasters. Um, he said, go back and make rubbish films. And he was not a very good instructor, but I thought that that was a beautiful insight. So Tron, you're not going to get worse than the original Tron, I don't think. And yeah, we, we watched the yeah we watched yeah. the original Tron a couple of years ago. Actually, I watched it with the children. Yes, yeah. it was yeah ploddingly yeah uh, ploddingly slow and yeah, yeah difficult to watch now. So I got to respect Kosinski. He's got uh, he's got a good uh, gig going on. Uh, did you see Tron Legacy though? But no, I did not. No, I should uh, probably see that. Yeah, yeah, because that also uh, interestingly we we watched that in two halves. We watched the first hour and we kind of went away thinking, hey, people people say Tron Legacy isn't isn't good, but it's great. I'm really yeah. enjoying it. Uh-oh. And then we came back and watched the second hour, and then we realized why people don't like it. Oh, actually, yeah. changed your mind. My advice, yeah, see the film, but only the first half. Yeah, all right, that's a good note. Um, he had 170 million dollars to make this one. It's already grossed 750 million, so Whoa. three quarters of a billion dollars in. Um, I think it's been out just maybe two weekends in the and yeah, I think so. Yeah, so yeah. ten days, two weeks max. So it's, it's Tom's biggest opening ever, isn't it? I think it's it's yeah, and he does open the film. I'll talk about that too. But uh, uh, some of the like um, some, some original people involved, like uh, uh, what's his name, Joel Bruckheimer. The is that his name? Bruckheimer. Yeah, and yeah. Don Simpson gets and his Don name Simpson. on screen. He's Don Simpson. Yeah. is like one of the first names that to appear on yeah. screen. Is he still well, these alive? Are the original, Don yeah, the original. Um, Producers from Top Gun in 1986 version. Um, some interesting writers in there. Um, Peter Craig, Justin Marks, Aaron Kruger among them, Aaron, Eric Warren, and Christopher McQuarrie among them. They wrote some of the Rings films, Mission Impossible, Usual Suspects is in there. So some writers with some good credits. Eric Singer also wrote Transformers, I think. Though. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, sort of so. A, per- a mix of all these films. And very often <laughs> if I see that many writers on something, I think, okay, something's wrong. But <laughs> they got a lot right. So uh, I'll hand it to them. Um, I've never seen this before, I don't think. Not in a modern film, but Tom Cruise comes out and introduces the film. He's obviously as excited as we are. So he looks uh, a little shaggy and uh, older, but he does a, an introduction of the film. Again, you wouldn't see that very often, but um, I like that. Now, Opening, I don't, yeah, wait a second. Right. I don't think that was on my print. Oh. I don't remember Tom Cruise saying any kind of intro in on the he's version out. that I saw in the UK. Oh, wow. No, he's sitting in, a, uh, I think, a theater, black T-shirt, shaggy hair. Oh, what does um, he say? He just says, you know, welcome to Top Gun. This film's 35 years in the making. And he talks about how excited they were to make it and and how proud they are of it. And then it's not a long introduction, but it's not something you see very often. So well, it's not something I've seen at all. We, exactly. We didn't yeah, get yeah. that in the European release. Yeah, that is not know. on the front of our print. It could That's be the science. It's the Scientology stuff. I think the, <laughs> you guys are less tolerant of that wisely. Than we are here. So th- there's a big pill to swallow here is that he's still a Scientologist. Um, this is good work by Tom Cruise standards, but um, I just, there was actually a, on the stream that I was just looking at on Yahoo, um, Leah Ramini, who is a former Scientologist and very much working to expose Scientology, um, does say, hey, look, yeah, big film. Remember who he is, though. So we'll have to take a pill, calm down a little bit as we talk about it. That's it. You know what? It has across my mind that I should join Scientology simply to try and improve my screenwriting career. <laughs> it would probably be the single most effective move I could make, wouldn't it? Yeah. I don't think you'd have that much control over the stories that you write, but <laughs> and you couldn't leave but the I compound. Work. I could work. Yeah. Um, there are lots of throwbacks in this film to the earlier uh, film, so it's it's good to go back and see Top Gun, I think, or at least remember, if you can, 
what happened in 1986. But it opens very similarly with the aircraft carrier, all this you know, work on the on the on the carrier to get the planes up in the air and all the technology. Fact, I mean, it opens, it opens identically, doesn't it? It's almost yeah, exactly it's almost the exactly, same sequence. Yeah. And I tell you one thing that really struck me right at the very very beginning of the film, after not getting the speech from Tom Cruise. Yeah, there's this kind of bell it's like synthesized bell sound effect yep which comes from like the original sound yeah. um, soundtrack to the first movie yes and, you know that and that was like um like priest's madeline to me that was like immediately took yeah. me back to 1986 just that yeah. one sort of synthesized sound effect yeah yeah amazing how evocative that single yeah. sound is so I'm so sure. you, oh, it, was, it was like you know, the 80s were back here yeah yeah very intentional, but it, to a certain extent, I felt it was like too much like the 80s were coming back. It's like, I think you guys need some new original music as well. But um, <laughs> psychologically, you're right. It did work to actually take you right back to the storylines and the whole, the ambiance, the story world. So that was a success for sure. Uh, let's see. Tom opens. He's uh, sort of out in the desert. I think the Mojave Desert. He's sort of testing planes. Um, and this new plane is going to try and break Mach 10. Um there's some uh, interest in ending their program. It's too expensive or whatnot. But um, Tom sort of takes the the plane into his own hands and proves that it can go Mach 10. It actually defeats that even though uh, or surpasses that even though the plane's technically not ready. Um, <laughs> and uh, Ed Harris is in this film very briefly. He gets a little yeah. bit of like testosterone infused lines as some as Commander Kane. He's saying we're going to end this program. Tom, get out of the air. Whatever. Don't do this t- Mach ten test. Whatever. Um, but uh, of course uh, he succeeds and um, he does break the Mach ten. Um, but he also, I think, he loses that plane. Jimmy, did I yeah, miss that? A, I mean, yeah, yeah he, sma- it smashes up completely. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. And it's like it's crazy because that's. I would assume millions, probably a billion dollars of aircraft <laughs> just gone. And we're going to see some more dollars go up in smoke in this film. But um, he was sort of unauthorized to do it. He did it anyway. Um, but he uh, does succeed, of course. And then he sort of ends up in this. This scene really bothered me a little bit. He kind of ends up in this just caricature like uh, hillbilly mountain town. And he's uh, he's jettisoned from his aircraft. And uh he um, sort of finds his way back home, but he through this town. It didn't make sense. It was like a real throwback. It didn't even feel like the 1980s, for that matter. It was like that 1950s <laughs> or 60s. So um, that was a little bit odd. Um, but I think an early message that comes across is, and this will be a theme, I think, throughout this film, that I liked team play and cooperation. It seems like uh, he's worried, more worried about his team. Like He feels like he knows what's going to happen to me if he doesn't succeed in this trip, but he... He also knows what's going to happen to his team if he doesn't ex- succeed, and that means they're all going to lose their jobs and they won't be getting that military funding money in the near future. So he's, you know, he's doing it for the team. Literally, it's a it's a little heavy handed, but it's a nice message, I think. Um, he gets uh, as a result. He's not really punished, but he's brought in to do this training. He's um, kind of rewarded, isn't he, for yeah. smashing up the billion dollar plane? Exactly. <laughs> oh, we want to make you the instructor of the next big project. Um, <laughs> And this is, it's in an unnamed country, but there's some sort of uranium storage facility being Sorry, installed. just to it's, 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 it's a lot like imagining like turning up to the bus driver's course and they tell you like, you know, here's, here's the three-week bus driver's course. We're going to turn you into a bus driver mm-hmm. and here's your instructor and it's a guy getting out of the wreckage of the most expensive <laughs> bus ever made. Yes, yeah. he's <laughs> literally still smoking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he gets, he's asked to go to uh, uh, San Diego, of course, we're in the Top Gun um, training academy is and now he's the instructor so he's sort of taking over the job that uh 
uh, is it Kelly McGillis did in yeah. the earlier film, um, which is interesting. Um, straight away, we meet Jennifer Connelly, who's Penny, uh, the daughter of an admiral. She's, she's actually mentioned in the first film. She doesn't appear in the film, original film. I don't know if her part was cut out or if she was really just a name drop in the first film, but she appears in this film as the owner of the bar. She's moved back to that area, and I think it's called the Hard Deck. Is that correct? Ah, uh, yeah, I think is it, is, it, is it hard deck or is it hard floor or something like that? Yeah, I think it's hard I deck. Did, I didn't yeah. note that, but yeah. Okay. So I had to look that up. It's actually a referral to ten thousand feet of altitude. Anything that happens, I guess, ten thousand feet and above. Ten thousand feet exactly is the hard deck. You're supposed to do all your stuff above ten thousand feet, but oh. in this film, they get very low, <laughs> as we'll see. There's a long bar scene, so he's sort of just observing some of the pilots who he might be instructing and training. This this scene was a little bit captivating to me and. It's funny because there's a similar scene in uh, They Were Expendable where he's just observing, but you can hear some of the young pilots' conversations, and typically I don't think he would actually hear that in the bar, but he's watching and observing, and you're getting a lot of their character development, and he's analyzing them for their characters because he's going to determine who's going to go on the big mission. Um, Is a really interesting scene. Yeah, go ahead. Do do, do they really have much in the way of characters to analyze? Yeah. not really. I mean, they're they're kind of stock for sure. You've got the um, what's his name, Hangman, who's kind of the asshole, but he's uh, egotistical. He's a good pilot, and he'll come back later. Um, you've got Rooster, who is Goose's son from the first film, played by Miles right, Teller. Yeah. He's one of the potential pilots. Um, I love his the... personality is mustache. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, mustache. <laughs> and he wasn't in uniform. He was wearing sort of a Hawaiian shirt or something, oh, buttoned yeah. down, chest exposed, um, <laughs> mustache and chest. Yes, so. Mustache and chest. That's his characterization. <laughs> These are experienced screenwriters. Remember that. Um, so he's really kind of just uh, getting himself back in the environment, but he's got a totally different role now, and he's really like adult and an observational, which he was not in the first film, of course. There are lots of even callbacks and even flashbacks to the first film, so it really um, connects pretty quickly. Um, it's very funny though because he gets eventually he's kicked out of the bar for I guess not paying he was gonna he had to buy everyone drinks because he did something or said something I forget what it was exactly but um, there was some rule that Penny has where you have to buy everyone a drink um, and it's very similar to the original Top Gun in the sense that um, Hangman and uh, some of the others throw him out of the bar and then they find out the next day that he is their instructor just as <laughs> yes. Tom Cruise had been hitting wildly on Kelly McGillis only to find out the next day that she will be his instructor. So they're really... Yes, exactly the same beat, yeah. Yeah, lots of the same beats, lots of callbacks and, and, and as I said, flashbacks earlier. Um, but I think the most important thing is that we do meet Miles Teller who's playing Rooster uh, as a potential pilot and um, there's history there because uh, Maverick had something to do with um, Rooster not being able to get into the Academy. He held his papers back, I think in part because he felt guilty about um, being in the accident where um, Goose, uh, uh, Rooster's father, had died. And this is something that they have in common, because actually um, in the original Top Gun, uh, Maverick was not allowed to join the Academy because um, the perceptions of how his father was as a pilot. Um, but Mav's much more all about bringing everyone home alive now, and he's grown up. He's a team player, as I said. That that theme does come out to me anyway. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Though, I mean, I guess I mean the first time we see Mav in the film, yeah. he's kind of having breakfast on his own, isn't he? It's like yeah. he's he is a team player, but he keeps like, but he's also sort of a man apart. He's a he's still kind of, you know, he has no family. He's 
still sort of alone, isn't he? Yeah, he's still the Maverick. I mean, that's that's exactly he right. lives up to the name. Yeah. Lives that lifestyle, but he's still, you know, still a great flyer. I think that's what we need to know. And now he's going to be a great instructor or at least try to be a great instructor. And the Iceman is in the background there. Val Kilmer's character is now an admiral. He has throat cancer. He has some sort of cancer illness. Val Kilmer, of course, in real life has throat cancer. Yeah. And it seems like Val Kilmer is the one who kind of, even though he's just trashed this airplane, he elevates uh, Maverick to uh, an instructor at um, at Top Gun. Um. This mission is crazy. You're flying down into a valley and almost like through canyons in order to drop a few bombs. It's a near impossible mission, but this is the man of Mission Impossible, so he can do it. We know that. Um, There's a lot of movement in this film. There's sailing at high speed, motorcycling at high speed, of course, aircraft carriers uh, moving quickly, flying in canyons. I mean, this is like that need for speed that they were calling for in uh, the original Top Gun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, uh, a couple of thematic statements. One early on is like, no time to think about the past. This comes up um, um, at some point. Like, it's it's time to move on. And uh, this film does move on. I did like that about it. Um, it definitely has a very good grounding 35 years earlier, but... Um, it uh, does move on. So they are leaving the past behind. And there's this um, scene finally um, after uh, Maverick has sort of been chastised by John Hamm's character. John Hamm plays another grouchy commander. A lot of these military guys are just kind of grouchy and they yell. And, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how hard those roles are to play, but John Hamm's yelling at him. And um, eventually um, uh, Tom Cruise goes to the Iceman himself, who's not doing well. Um, yeah. This is a pretty extraordinary scene, Jimmy, so I'd love your take on it as well. But uh, it's a scene where Val Kilmer, he can deliver a couple lines, but they end up having this typing exchange where he's typing and Tom Cruise has to sort of carry the scene. And I was impressed. I thought Tom Cruise did a great job in that scene. I know that it probably meant a lot to both of the actors, but he was acting and he was acting pretty well. And uh, Kilmer gets a line in there. He does it a bunch on the typewriter, keeps pointing to it, something about it's time to let go of the past. So that theme comes up again. It's like we've got to move on. There are all these old stereotypes of who we are as humans or uh, what our characters are and and, um, all this individualism. It's time to let go of the past and move on, which is um, a little bit ironic just because the film literally is banking big on past franchise material. But um, it's an interesting uh, piece of the film. What did you think about that scene? So I, I must say, I, I had something in my eye during that scene. I did find it quite moving. Yeah. Um, in real life, I don't think Val Kilmer can speak anymore. So yeah. when he does all the typing and then he has a couple of spoken lines that he yeah. kind of gruffly kind of coughs out. Yeah. Um, I think that is dubbed by another actor oh, really? or they've yeah. done some sort of thing where they've sort of synthesized his voice. Sure. Because I don't I don't think Val Kilmer can speak like that anymore. There's, I have I have an observation about this film, which is that it's. I think this is two films overlaid on each other like a double exposure. So there is the film about you know Maverick the the tearaway top gun instructor who has to turn the trainees into a, you know good material to fly this difficult mission. But there is also there's a meta film which I think is kind of more what we've gone to see. I think the film um I think the film is mostly exciting and thrilling and absorbing because it's almost like one of those IMAX documentaries about what it's like to train to be a pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of the stunt work is done for real. Yeah. that I think a lot of the enjoyment of the film comes out of, of, of seeing 
oh my God, that's the real actual Tom Cruise actually flying an actual plane actually really fast. It has yeah. that kind of, the, there's a real kind of immediacy and veracity to it. And I think that is a large part of the core of the film. And I think this Val Kilmer scene fits into that groove as well. Mm. That I don't think that scene is, it, you know, it's not about the characters and it's not about Iceman and Maverick. It's about Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer. Yeah. And it's kind of them acknowledging, you know, this is probably Val Kilmer's last role. Um, you know, he's not well and he's not doing great. I mean, we're probably not going to see him on screen again. And it's a way for we, the audience, to say, well, you know, you were cool and we loved you. And, you know, you made some questionable movies, but actually you did some very enjoyable stuff as well. And and we are kind of, um, you know, acknowledging your, his his pain and his passing and anticipating yeah. you know the time when he won't be in the world anymore and uh, i think you know, th that is absolutely what that scene is about and and the dialogue that happens between them about you know the mission and um and the plot of the film is just sprinkled on the top the, you know the real meat of that scene is the hug between two actual yeah. real men yeah. who acted together as young men and now you know their lives have gone different ways and they're both you know much older yeah. i yeah i i did have a tear in my eye in that okay. scene actually i don't yeah. think i was the only one it's it's a you know it's a it's a great scene um it's a great performance i don't think it's great acting i think it's you know it's, right. it's a scene it's a meta scene for we the audience good point good point there was only one other guy in the audience i don't know if he was crying and i don't think i was either but it was definitely he, he, I liked he didn't it. come yeah, down yeah. for a hug during that scene he didn't yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's climbing over that the would, seats just saying i need to hold someone in the dark oh no <laughs> <It's terrible. laughs> Um, but also, yes, and I think a lot of the, any lingering animosity from the old days of Iceman and Maverick uh, and their frenemy status probably melts away in that scene. It is lovely. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice, nice piece. Comes really kind of right on the midpoint of the film too, which is uh, telling. I think. Right. Um, sexy sex with Jennifer Connelly. They <laughs> hook up. They've had this on and again, off again, as far as we can tell through the exposition. Um, with much less of the silhouette tongue action of Cruz and McGillis in Top Gun. I mean, those scenes, yeah. you saw those. Woof. I, I found that quite embarrassing to watch, even more okay. embarrassing to okay. watch in front of the children last oh, night, God. actually. But yes, oh, that, terrible. That, was, that was, yeah, that was a bit too much. Far There's too much only time. so much you can cover up with some blue gauze, you know, and yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I could see everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> that traumatized so, so, yeah. me 35 years ago and again <laughs> now, so... Um, Whereas but, it's kind of it's actually quite a sweet kind of it's a pretty sweet scene between Jennifer Connelly and Tom yes. Cruise, isn't it? For this, yeah, that's um, another thing that really I'll talk a little bit about the maturity of this film compared to the maturity of uh, the original Top Gun because you know the, the characters are probably in their fifties at this point. Yeah, I think um, they are, and they've got this. It's an this, age appropriate romance, isn't yeah, exactly. It, as well, yep, it's totally age appropriate. And Penny's daughter says, you know, you've, uh, she's looking for trust. She says, do not break my mother's heart again as he's trying to sneak out of the house. She knows he's there and she sees him. And uh, so there's a little bit of this parents learning from children. There's another yeah. another kind of theme there where it's not always about instructing someone younger, but it's also about learning from one another, I think, um, that comes through. Um, there's an accident in training that sets up this heart-to-heart -heart with Rooster uh, and this sort of like, you know, they don't necessarily make up immediately, but it's this long in the making explanation and apology about what happened and trying to get clear because um, Rooster's going to be one of these candidates to go on this very dangerous, perilous mission. Um, and uh, the Iceman succumbs to cancer. So that sort of sets up this, you know, sort of do it for the Iceman kind of feeling that um, uh, I think dominates the last part of the film. Uh Tom Cruise is sort of selected to actually lead the mission. John Hamm says, you know, I've got no choice, really. I've got to put you in it. And I think 
there's this anticipation that someone's going to die on this mission. Yeah. Is it going to be Maverick or not? So he's, uh, it's a very dangerous thing. So he's going to lead, but Rooster's going to be his, I believe the wingman is the, the term yeah. that you hear there a lot. Um, and I think you mentioned earlier, the structure of this film is really built around this whole mission. It sort of frames the whole story. Um, and then things are just sort of layered on top of that. Um, so we do get to um, an intense uh, mission scene where they're going into this valley, as I said before, several airplanes even flying through the supports of bridges. I mean, there's some intense piloting going on. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, it's tense. Yeah. It's, uh, and Tom gets hit. So, I mean, I should say Tom. Uh, Maverick gets hit. Rooster's going to go back to save him. Um, they both have jettisoned from their plane, but they're able to sort of link up on the ground and escape together. And that's when there's sort of this, again, this love-hate stuff. They're still working on their emotions. This is more of a psychological film than the previous one, I think. Um, but they yeah. got to get out of this mess together. They end up stealing an old plane from uh, the landing strip uh, or airport of the... The, the, the nuclear installment, the uranium, uranium storage place that they've uh, actually totally disabled. So it's going to be amazing if they get off the ground. They do, but they engage with another <laughs> couple of pilots in a dogfight. And it's important to note that the, the enemy is never really named in this film. Um, yeah. It's really just this uranium storage thing, or I think, uh, honestly, the enemy is a lot of our our past and what we carry with us but um so they do get into a dog oh, fight and that's, and that's and just a very when they're um, about to bite it hangman comes to the rescue i, I was going to say your your interpretation of the yeah the enemy is the past here yeah. it's that's um yeah that's a you know for a clever interpretation i think yeah, that's i like that yeah. I, I wrote on my notes here that this film occurs in a geopolitical disneyland yeah, that like that. This kind of it's super vague and generic. It's you know, it's just yeah. they don't name the country. They just say, oh, there's kind of some country, and it's got you know, it's got sort of some mountains, and it's got some yeah. forests, and it's got some snow, and it could kind of be anywhere. And I'm guessing we're supposed to think it's Iran, but uh, you know, uh, be, but, yeah. but 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 it doesn't really kind of look a lot like Iran. Um, and it's even actually, this yeah. this this kind of uranium enrichment plant that they yeah. have to bomb. It just seems kind of amazing to me that maybe this is naive of me, but I don't understand how you could have a uranium enrichment plant you know, in a valley where there's no, you know, there's no trains, no roads, yeah. how do you get no it landing pads, no nothing. I mean, how, how are they getting the uranium there? <laughs> there's utterly no infrastructure at all. And yet somehow they've got like a whole staff of people yeah. down there to, 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 to enrich uranium. It's, so I don't understand how any of that works. Yeah. And I think, but I think I agree. I think the film doesn't, doesn't doesn't um, expect you to ask or doesn't expect to offer an explanation about how any of that works. It's purely a MacGuffin. But you're right. The enemy is the past. That's yeah. great. I'm going to write that down. Oh, please that's do, good. please do. Sorry, I interrupted. Carry on. No, no, no. We're almost there. Um, that's sort of that's yeah. That's the sort of the climax of the film. The denouement involves um, Rooster and Mab getting together at the hangar where Tom has been working on this plane, maybe restoring an old plane. Um, and he's looked for um, Penny before back at the flight deck, and she's on this long road trip. Turns out she and her daughter pull up in the, onto the runway in her fancy sports car. <laughs> they fly off into the sunset together, presumably in the plane that he's restoring. Um, and, I, you know, as I said, I think this film's a good, very good ride. Ultimately, it sort of can't help itself, so it does dissolve into some of these past cliches, and you've got the sunset and the planes sort of doing some maneuvers, and they're flying off into ecstasy and their future together, I guess. But um, I liked it. I did like it. Um, 
couple things that I thought of, like Rooster is probably way too young to be Goose's son. I mean, I assume this takes place in 2022. So he, you see Rooster oh, yeah. in, he's a five-year-old in 1987. So he'd be late 30s. I mean, I think that's a little old for the, the, the young pilots, but I'll buy it. It's no big deal. But okay. if you start yeah, thinking yeah, on those good things. Point. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I did think I in, that. in general, I thought it was just far more forward thinking and more modern. There's a very diverse cast. There are lots of women pilots and um, pilots of color and mature characters. It's less violent. It doesn't have as much of the toxin, toxic uh, masculinity or testosterone-fueled stuff that we expect in these films. Um, and the the problems were kind of believable. The characters were wrestling with them, and they were believable and... It's, yeah, you're resting, I think, wrestling against past tendencies. So I'll come back to that um, and say that it's a surprisingly psychological film. This is the thing that, you know, wasn't just dogfights and explosions the way um, another film might have been or this film might have been earlier. It's very interesting to have a sequel come 35 years later when the, the characters have to be more mature. They have to be more developed. Um, and there's a lot of odd sort of wrestling with exposition. You're not talking about exposition back a few years and, you know, recently you're talking about trying to cover 35 years of exposition sometimes, which was, they didn't they didn't do a whole lot, but you do get these little explanations once in a while that have to cover decades as opposed to being something recent. But maybe, maybe it succeeds on one level because of that, because it's not, it, it, we've talked about it being about the past, but they're not wrestling with the past and like trying to just make Top Gun again. They actually are taking it somewhere distant and somewhere well into the future. Yeah, no, they are. I, I tried. I, I was asking myself you know, the same question that we always ask: "Oh, what's it about?" And I've kind of I sort of wrestled with this a little bit because when, when I left the cinema, I did kind of feel that uh, you know what Tom Cruise's character doesn't feel like he is much different at the end of the film to the character that he was at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. He hasn't gone through that much of a journey. And it took me a while to try and sort of dissect out exactly what's happened to him. And I've, I've sort of figured out, I think, I think really he starts the film like as a child, doesn't he? That he's kind of, he's on his own. He's eating his breakfast on his own. He's playing with his, his kind of toy plane. Yeah. And then when things don't go away, his way, he basically, he smashes up his toy plane. So he kind of, he smashes his toys, mm-hmm. throws everything out of the pram, dumps everything. Um, he's kind of reaching for adulthood, but I think that he thinks his attitude is that ad- adulthood will be achieved through sacrifice, um, which is something we'll come on to. I think when we talk about the John Ford film in a minute. Yeah. So, so he's his, he's already sacrificed Rooster's respect for him. So he promised Rooster's mum that he would get him out of the out of the kind of the fighter pilot program, and he did his best to do that, which means that Rooster hates him now. And so that was kind of his sacrifice, and he's kind of learning even that sacrifice was not enough. He's going to have to sacrifice himself to protect Rooster. So he goes on the mission, you know, his and he's you know he has the goodbyes to all of the other cast members before he goes on the mission, fully expecting not to come back. Um, and then at the very end of the movie. Um, Rooster is going to get shot down. So um, Tom Cruise kind of puts his plane in the way and he takes the bullet, you know, and, um, you know, and he's made his ultimate sacrifice. Yeah. And he, because if he hopes that that's what's going to get him to adulthood now, you know, it's the end of his life, but he's going to die as an adult. He's made it. Um, but then amazingly, he survives and Rooster comes after him. And you get this kind of this final 15 minutes of the movie, which is sort of quite a different tone to the whole of the rest of the second act. It sort of becomes this sort of buddy comedy. And I think it's it's Tom Cruise's character realising that becoming a real adult um, isn't about jumping in front of the bullet. It's about staying alive. Yeah. 
to to repair and nurture the relationships that he's already got that this idea of sacrificing himself you know isn't a, a noble solution at all it's actually kind of a it's a coward's way out and that the, the the real bravery is him staying alive and looking after the people who are close to him and and trying to grow into those relationships so i think that's the change that he goes through the beginning of the film this a, a shot of tom cruise on his own tightening a nut um on yeah. a on, on this on this um airplane that he's um repairing or renovating and then at the end of the movie you get exactly the same shot he seems to be tightening the same knot but he gets halfway through it and then he invites miles teller rooster's rooster to come and and, and finish off tightening it up yep. and i think no that is that is his his character development isn't it it's like he's sort of growing a proxy family around himself yeah or kind of or accepting some of these responsibilities um so i, I think that's the journey that he goes through but yeah. it's yeah, it's it's not it's not kind of front and center. I mean, the thing that is front and center in this movie is oh my god, there's actual Tom Cruise actually flying an actual plane, yeah. actually really fast. You know that that is sixty percent of what I think is fun about the film, and yeah. that is really fun. Yeah, it's um, but you're right. I think um, there's growth in his character. It's not massive growth, but it's growth, and I think that's you know for many of us that's all we can expect, and that might be all we do. But he's done it. Um, you're absolutely right on that point. Yes. Well, we'll we'll, we'll talk a bit more about sacrifice. Mm. Um, I'm sure when we come back um, after the break. But let's have a quick break now, and then uh, we will come back and we will have a chat about John Ford's "They Were Expendable." We're back uh, to talk about a, a, a different view of militarism on the screen. So uh, first time, this is exciting. This is the first time we get to talk about a John Ford yeah. uh, film uh, on the pod. Now, am I now do I remember this right? Did John Ford build part of your school? Did you tell me that? Uh -huh. No, John Ford <laughs> graduated from my school. Oh, right. Um, I think around 1930. Or fourteen, I think he was born in ninety four, eighteen ninety four. So he probably he would have graduated somewhere in the twelves to the sixteens or something like that. Um, so he grew up on uh, well, he was born in Cape Elizabeth, not far from here, and then grew up on Peaks Island. And I think a lot of the boating. He's kind of an expert in boating. I think he grew up on the water and um, came to our school in Portland, probably by boat every day because he lived on the island, <laughs> and then. Um, I always have this idea that we had a, a massive expansion around 19. It probably started in 1914, maybe when he was still there as a, in his last year of school. Um, I think the, the completion was 1918. But I always have this idea of him, um, you know, kicking around that grounds. And as a young teen, probably not exactly clear what he was going to do. And inside that part of the building is the John Ford Theater. So he was kicking mm. around on something that is now <laughs> named after him, um, <laughs> which is mind-boggling. But yeah, he's a legend around here. They called him, I think, uh, his, his original name is Feeney. He was Bull Feeney because he was a, uh, right. yeah. a big football player, and uh, they called him Bull Feeney. But, and I think he was originally Jack Feeney, maybe, and changed it to John Ford for, for the... Um, the movie industry yeah, and it's, I don't know if the Ford like Ford Coppola's if there's any relationship there because he followed his brother out to Hollywood and became a director um, I think I think uh, 
famous storyteller. I think for a lot of the time, John Ford claimed to have been born in Ireland, but actually, yeah, this is all no. complete nonsense. Born in Maine, yeah. So um, they were expendable in 1945. It's John Ford's last uh, uh, army film. Um, he had been a commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve during the Second World War. He was the head of the photographic unit for the Office of Strategic Studies. Uh, the film was written by Frank Weed, who was also a U.S. Navy aviator. So he was kind of, you know, these guys were the mavericks of their day in real life. Um, great cast. Uh, Robert Montgomery, John Wade, John Wayne, John Wade, who's he? Uh, Donna Reed. Um, and the story is about uh, a, a naval torpedo boat crew. So at the start of the movie, um, Robert Montgomery, John Wayne, they're uh, part of a, a PT boat crew patrol torpedo boat crew they're hanging out in the philippines they're waiting to see action in world war ii and john wayne is writing his application for a transfer to a destroyer because he's bored of sitting out the war and not seeing any action and then pearl harbor happens that's 1941 am i right yes uh, uh i thought it was 42 but maybe is that it was right 41 <sighs> i thought it was 42 it, uh, yeah okay but it does you're uh, right it says 1941 the year of our lord 1941 if you, if you saw that on the <laughs> That's the the uh, title card there. Oh, the opening crawl. Yeah. So um, so they're mobilized and, and the, the big Navy brass are a bit skeptical that these PT boats uh, will be any good. Um, and like like the Admiral says something like, uh, you know, your boots, boats are very maneuverable, but I need something more substantial. Mm -hmm. And so they're told they're just going to do messenger runs. But um, true to, to John Ford's uh, themes, uh, his films are always about sort of outsiders so um, so Robert Montgomery and John Wayne, they're kind of outsiders and they decide they're going to do their own thing. Um, so uh, they uh, go out and they sink some Japanese vessels. Um, so they very quickly prove their worth. There are some very exciting scenes of them going out at night with these little tiny wooden torpedo boats with these massive torpedoes mounted on the side of the boats. And they uh, find uh, these uh, Japanese destroyers, torpedo them and they get shot at from the the the, the ship and uh, they get raided by uh, light aircraft um, but they manage to to gradually pick off these japanese boats uh, lots of explosions lots of water thrown into the air but um, for all their heroism gradually the boats and the crew are picked off and over the course of the movie the us is retreating and it abandons the philippines and this this movie is all about a campaign that uh, the us lost um, that they uh, retreated and uh, left the region, planning to come back. And it's about that campaign. Uh, John Wayne, as Rusty, has a septic arm uh, from a shrapnel wound. So he gets sent to hospital. And there he meets um, Sandy, a nurse played by Donna Reed. He falls in love and they have this um, very sweet, very chaste kind of uh, love affair. Um, but uh, gradually, uh, after he gets back into action... There are fewer and fewer boats, fewer and fewer crew. And then uh, eventually um, uh, Montgomery and Wayne, they're told, that's it. Uh, you know, we're withdrawing. You two, you've got to come with us to Australia. We're going to send you back to the US to promote and build up a new fleet of PT boats. And the other remaining crew, they're basically left behind on the Philippines to fight or die. Um, it's a film all about uh, sacrifice. Um, and it's uh, it's. Dignified, beautifully shot, bit of a downer. Um, it's a very, very different view of the Navy and of militarism compared to what we've seen in, in Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. And uh, interesting to see a film that's 
taken from a, um, an utterly different perspective. I was watching this film asking myself, what is the function of the film? Mm. After Top Gun, I think um, Navy recruitment skyrocketed because everybody watched uh, Tom Cruise uh, and Kelly McGillis riding around on motorbikes, having a great time and thought, well, I want some of that. I'm going to sign it for the Navy. It looks awesome. Whereas the function of this film is utterly the opposite. Um, John Ford is not in the business of persuading anyone to join the Navy. It's a film about remembering um, and about and remembering those who um, sacrificed. And it, uh, it um, expounds that view, it tells that tale, portrays these characters um, beautifully. Did you enjoy did you enjoy this film? No. <laughs> I don't think so. This is the second time I've seen it. The first time was at school. Yeah, we saw uh, it together. We at saw school. it together. We did, yeah. And um I remember not liking it a whole lot then. I mean, there's some things that I will talk about that I do like, but um overall, no, I think the story is just too it's too weak. It's really a slow, slow script. I think it's long by forty five minutes at least. And um I think He's sort of out of his element here, um, which is funny because he, he's in his element absolutely as a soldier. And I felt like he was yeah. out of his realm in his element as exactly the same amount as a filmmaker. So it was very strange. Like he, because I, I don't know that he left film for a little while, but he had did that time in the Navy um, and he was doing photography for the Navy, as you said. But it's almost as if the, the Navy part, the soldier part took over on this film. Um, he does some interesting things as a filmmaker that we'll talk about but um i think as a result it just it doesn't wash over me very well it's just a very funny film and it is about it's about the same length as top gun it's like two hours ten minutes yeah it is um, yeah so it they're is very similar and there are there are lots of similarities we can talk about um but i just don't think that they ever nailed the story like the donna reed stuff i love donna reed um it felt just like pasted in there without much sincerity it was not it was it was a gentle love story there's that whole dinner scene where um john wayne has um, her over for dinner with these six other soldiers. Like, what, is, what is that for? There was a dance scene at a hospital. All of a sudden, they they go from surgery to a dressed up dance, and there were some strange things in there. And a lot of the there was there was a lot there were a lot of silences that were not really like pregnant or interesting silences. Just but just these slow things where I don't think people they knew what to write for dialogue. So things felt really stilted. Um, so this is not a film that I'm going to recommend um, for story. But we can okay. talk a little bit about some of the techniques that I thought were very interesting and some of the things that do succeed. But uh, I think that was it. It was that it was too much a soldier film and not nearly enough a filmmaker's film. Ah, I, the thing it most reminded me of is, um, I don't know whether you've seen this, The White Ship, which is a documentary film um, made in the Second World War by Roberta, Roberta Rossellini. Have you mm. seen that? No. So that's that's a beautiful, very moving film. Um, which strikes a similar sort of tone. It's a documentary um, and it's just following the, the story of a hospital ship um, in the Second World War. And it's, you know, it's very, very humane, like all of Rossellini's films. And it really kind of drills down into the characters mm. of you know, the people who are on this ship. Um, it's beautifully made. This film reminded me quite a lot of that. Mm. I've, I've written here... Um, the, the hospital scenes are brutal, rushed, shadowy, empathic. Those are the four um, adjectives that I wrote down mm -hmm. that uh, the, the scene where the surgeon is 
you know, doing his best, rushing through. They get like yeah. 200 patients in a night. Yeah. And he's basically, he's got to just quickly sew up one guy, wash his hands, wheel in the next. We're going to sew him up, wash my hands, wheel in the next. Yeah. And it's just, it's just relentless. And they do this in silence, but it's kind of shadowy and you don't see anything explicitly on the screen. It's all covered by a sheet. Yeah. But you just get this, this kind of quiet desperation. Yeah. Um, Some and, of but the, you get these shots of Donna Reed in there that don't seem like they belong in the same scene. She's there. <laughs> at one point, she's wearing a baseball cap, but she's in a surgical theater or something. And then she's, it just, it seems like he wanted close-ups of her, but it didn't look like she was doing anything. She was in a darker setting than the film was or the rest of the scene was. Um, there were a lot of, there were a lot of what I thought kind of struck me as kind of amateur mistakes in the shooting. That was this one thing that <gasps> really... Yeah, um, and this is a technique that you see in the older films where they'll go to, from a wide shot, they go to a mid-range shot. And right. if, if the actor's not doing exactly the right thing, the same thing that they did in the wide shot to the mid, it's you get this disorienting look. And, you know, the, the blocking has to be exactly the same. So you, you see this in older films. I mean, I think now I think you'd go, you'd have like a per, very superficial, you know, wide shot or opening shot, and then um, you might go straight to something close up, so you get an idea of where the characters are in the scene. But when it's almost pointless to go to a mid shot from a from a from a really from a wider shot, I think. And it's just strange the way it, it just doesn't cut together unless you've got great editing and you've got a cut on movement. Of course, the, the actors are either not moving at all, um, that might be clean, or you, they've got to be doing the same movement. And there's this one scene at that dinner table where John uh, John Wayne is drinking something in the wider shot and then they kind of go to a medium of almost the same shot and his drink is already on the table and it's just <laughs> the movement's all wrong and i think it just it destroys the flow so i think one thing about this film is there is zero flow i never felt like it was really moving progressively some of that's writing but i think some of that was actually filmmaking so i was just wondering you know he's been out of practice he's not making films for a couple of years he's serving in the navy he comes back and he's trying to do something. He's trying to make a Bergman film, I think. Ford was trying to do an art film at times. Like there are those beautiful um, images of the people going through the tunnel to get in and out of the hospital. Yeah. And it's very noir. It's really beautiful. It's almost like they're either going into the darkness and death and then walking back out into the light. Um, but I don't think it really pays off in this film. It just seems the wrong film for that. And it looks like he's either trying to do, and with that shot that I was talking about with Donna Reed, it's almost like he's trying to go all the way back to Carl Dreyer and do like in the. Um, the, uh, what is that film about uh, Joan of Arc? I think it's just called Joan of Arc, where he there's a lot of real close-ups. So he's no. mixing things up. Those close-ups on Donna Reed looked like they were from a drier film from the 20s or 30s, but it just it doesn't all add up. It's very it's very strange. And I thought, boy, he, was he out of practice as a filmmaker because he'd been in the Navy for a couple of years? Um, so there were a lot of what I thought were kind of rudimentary errors just in filming it. There are also a couple of just fantastic scenes, like some of the stuff with the boats blowing up. Those are beautiful. I mean, it yeah. sounds odd to say that, but um, just the destruction of the ships, it's really quite good for that age. I mean, this is it's absolutely spectacular, isn't it? They get hit with two torpedoes and then there's yeah. just five minutes of fireworks yeah. while each bit of the ship blows up in turn. Yeah, and a lot of those flares, those big flames that are in the air all the time, they're really quite convincing. It's 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 great. And there's this one scene at the end, I don't know if you caught this, but you know, they're obviously using a lot of rear projection, I think. There's this one scene where... This troop is marching along this road where Brick, um, Montgomery's character, and 
uh, Rusty John Ford's Rusty, character yeah. sitting on the side of the road, and it's actually a projection on a screen. So there, it's just a, it's it's a uh, it's a laid yep. over shot where they're sitting on the road, and then the action on the road is actually on a completely different screen coming at them, and it's it's literally smoke and mirrors. They get all this smoke from fires and things coming up, <laughs> um, and you know screens and mirrors, and it's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's really hard to notice it. I mean, it looks very well done. Um, so there, I mean, there's black and white. Really lends itself to that, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's an odd film in that sense, and there's so much expertly done stuff, but then there also what I thought were a lot of just painful mistakes that I saw. Mm. Yeah. I think some wonderful faces in this film. Yeah. I think Ford Ford kind of boasted about it, calling himself the best photographer in Hollywood yeah. at one point in an interview, and I you know I think he was right. Um, some of the composition. Um, especially on the close-ups in this in this film, yeah. just so beautiful. I was asking myself, why doesn't every film look this good? Yeah, um, because uh, it's just so beautifully um, set up, so beautifully lit. I thought there's yeah. an early scene where um, Robert Montgomery is getting his orders, and you know he's being told, "You just, you've just, you've just got to carry messages across the bay. That's all your, your boats are good for." But the way that his commanding officer is lit, just with a, a ray of light across his face, and mm. then. Robert Montgomery turns away and the same ray of light illuminates his face and mm. he's half in shadow and half in light. It's, you know, it appears effortless, but, but Montgomery must have hit his mark so precisely yeah. to let the light fall just across his face in just the right way. I think it's really beautiful. This film is very interested in faces. Yeah. And it's not just the faces of the main characters. You know, anyone can be interested in Donna Reed's face, but it's it's the face of the... The um, you know, like just the, the ordinary uh, non-speaking characters, sure. Cookie, the, Doc, absolutely, yeah, the yeah. People in people in the background, people who don't even have any lines. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the camera really pays attention to their face. Yeah. Um, and I I think that's that's beautiful. That's a big part of the humanity of the the film. It's interesting how the in Top Gun. You know, we have a bunch of different characters, but those characters are all in some way kind of the same character. Because if you're going to be a, a fighter pilot, you know, those jobs only attract the same kind of people. So it's all kind of, you know, even with the woman character, it's a high testosterone, sort of aggressive yeah. alpha type character. They're, so they're all the same. Whereas this is very much a film about regular people, it's regular guys you know, who are making the best of it. Um, not the best of the best who are fighting to be at the top of his very narrow heap. Um, and that kind of felt truer and more refreshing. Um, always good to see John Wayne on screen. Don't you think? Did you not enjoy his scenes? I, I hated John Wayne until we went to film school. <laughs> and then I really loved John Wayne after that. So film school really did give it. And then I think we did a whole unit maybe on John Ford. That's why we saw a bunch of his films at once. And um yeah, this is this is the kind of stuff that made me really appreciate John Wayne. It was good to see him on screen, and he's one of those faces too that um, obviously um, Ford liked to linger on in so many films. Um, so uh, yeah, it's great to see John Wayne. He brings exactly what he needs to, um, and he's not yet he he's sort of not in control in the way he is in so many other films where he is really the lead. Um, yeah, and he's a man. This this film has that uh, connection to Maverick, I think, in the sense that it's there's sort of like this unlikely buddy romance thing going on. Like he and Brick don't really get along that well, um, and there is a little competition between them. But you know, they obviously come together to to uh, to, to complete their missions and such. But uh, it, yeah, it's great to see John Wayne on screen. Not one of his better roles. I just you know this doesn't this isn't as good as like Liberty Valance or. 
um, uh, some of the other, you know, John Wayne classics, I think. That, stagecoach. Yeah, yeah, stagecoach for sure, Quiet Man or Searcher, something like that. Um, so, and I think part of it is just, um, you know, again, it's based on a book and it felt, it almost felt too real to me. I know that's kind of stupid to say, mm. but um, it seems like it was a reportage without the, all the boring stuff edited out. It's like, this happens <laughs> and then this happens and then this happens without really a strong uh, character through line. So um, I, I think you're probably right is that it seems very accurate and it includes everyone, not just the top gunners, but it's everybody as a community working together. Um, and I think, I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but I, I, I think you did talk about propaganda a little bit. Both of these films to me seem like propaganda, like Top Gun. Yeah, definitely recruiting would go up. Um, as, as mundane as this one might seem at times or as, as like a workman like it is, um, I still think it's, um, uh, it's, you know, it was made with the lots of military, uh, support obviously and guidance. And, mm, you know, you yeah. still are seeing the all the cool stuff in war and all the torpedoes and things like that. So I think both films do, whether intentionally or not, they definitely work on some level as, as military propaganda pieces. I'm just going to go quickly back to John Wayne. Is yeah. that interesting, your comment about how there's sort of a bit of a rivalry between Rusty and Brick yeah. between John Wayne and Robert Montgomery. Um, and Robert Montgomery, you know, is the ranking officer and he calls the shots, but there's a, a beautiful um, shot of the two of them, like a tour at the, at the end when they're in the plane being evacuated. Yeah. And you know, without anyone sort of talking about it or mentioning or whatever, um, John Wayne has got his arm around Robert Montgomery as yeah. they fly off. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just this kind of, yeah, it's, um, it's lovely kind of beautiful, casual kind of love and mutual respect between these two men. I thought that was great. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing about this film. This film knows how tall John Wayne is. Yeah. Um, whenever Donna Reed is talking to him, she's looking up like she's staring at a giant. I mean, yeah. there must have, I guess there were 18 inches between them. Yeah. Um, and this is remarkably different to watching the original Top Gun from 1986, where Thank that film has no idea how yeah. tall Tom Cruise is. Yes. Um, and there's some, some scenes where Tom Cruise is looking up at Tom Skerritt and then he's looking down at him later yeah. on and then they're eye to eye. Yes. And it's like, I'm, I'm sure when they shot that film, Tom Cruise he was standing on a box, but it was yeah. always a different box yeah. on different days. <laughs> and they could never quite figure out, oh, we brought the wrong box. No. Um I want, so, yes, I just want to thank. Yeah, I want to thank you for mentioning that because this was actually in my notes. Was that in Maverick? Tom Cruise was finally acting his height. Um, yeah, because he, he does really, that now. He, yeah, he does he? that now. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, is very interesting. Yeah. So again, there's that growth not only in the character but also in the actor. Or maybe it's not growth. Maybe it's a, if you're shrinking. I guess it's not growth. <laughs> anyway, but the point a is a general contraction. Yes. <laughs> so yes, they're both acting their real heights in these films, which is wonderful. So a hit and a miss, it sounds like, from you. From me, for... yeah. I mean, I've seen it twice now. I'm not going to see it again. Um, I'm not going to tell anyone to run out and see it, but I would say, you know, you need to to know that it's a longish film and that there are things to look for in the filmmaking as well as in... But there's maybe there's not enough to look at in the storytelling. Watch it at one and a half times speed. Yeah. 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 I, I, who would have thought a few months ago mm-hmm. um, that uh, that you would be... Um, telling people that you preferred the Top Gun sequel <laughs> to a John Ford film. I know. <laughs> what yeah. crazy times we live in. It's character growth in my own person. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. okay. I hit and a miss. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed. I enjoyed them both. I think they were expendable. Is 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 beautiful. But yeah, yeah. Um, know what know what you're getting when you go in, which is kind of a semi documentary. Yeah. And some lovely pictures of John Wayne. Good point. Um, so I've I've enjoyed this. 
Um, definitely, I think everyone should go out and see Top Gun Maverick. Oh, wait a second, $750 million. It looks like everybody already has. Yes. <laughs> so come get your second tickets and see it again. Good for you. Um, and uh, I hope you will join us for the next episode. Yeah. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye.